Good evening, my friends, and welcome to St. Thomas More. My name is Father R.J. Fichtinger. I'm the pastor here in this community. If you're not aware of who I am, if I haven't been able to get around to you and introduce myself to you, uh, it is my absolute pleasure this evening to welcome both Michael Lachlan and uh, Chris Damien to sort of talk about this phenomenal book, Hidden Mercy, and the ways in which Catholics, maybe not in the universal church, but as individuals were able to overcome their fear, their realities, and, and be incredibly generous with their lives and their love as they showed support for to, to our brothers and sisters suffering from HIV and AIDS. Tonight's moderator is Chris Damien, who is a parishioner of St. Thomas More and a, a friend. I'd, I'd like to consider you a friend. That's maybe too much. All right. Um, who has written quite a bit himself about the state of the church and the LGBTQ community. He is a lawyer and is uh, an excellent writer on sort of the state of the Catholic Church in the modern era. He will be our moderator this evening. And of course, I don't know if I have to introduce Michael Lachlan, author extraordinaire of the book, of course, and as well as an author at American Magazine. His most recent article talks about LGBTQ the LGBTQ community and its relationship to transgendered youth and people in the church and the ways in which this church can walk with them. I'm excited to hear what they have to say, talking about the book, talking about this history and the ways in which the church today can be challenged to continue to walk and accompany those on the margins. Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome both of these gentlemen as I hand it over to Chris. I would like to know a little bit about the group here, so I'll gather some demographic information right now. If you don't feel comfortable answering these questions, you don't have to. Um, but one of the things that I would like to know first is maybe like what generation everyone comes from. So uh, could you raise your hand if you are Gen Z? Oh, great, welcome. Um, how about any millennials? That would be me, okay. Uh, Gen X, how about boomers, and other? Okay, um, yeah, well, welcome everyone. And how about, um, of the group here, how many of you have, and if you haven't, that's fine, how many of you have had a chance to read the book, um, Hidden Mercy? Oh, great, that's awesome. Um, I mean, it's great when people have not read the book because you'll be able to buy the book now. Um, afterwards. And so this is another one where if you don't feel comfortable sharing, you don't have to. Um, but uh, if you are open to raising your hand, how many of you knew someone or there was someone close to your family or family members who has died of AIDS? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, and so I think that you know, this is a subject that's really important because there are a lot of people who could be here and are, are not. And, and as, as I read this book, um, it opened up a lot of conversations in my family, actually. Um, so both of my parents were in medical school um, during the time period when that, that Hidden Mercy talks about. And as I was reading it, I asked my parents what the experience of, of the AIDS crisis was. And then they started sharing stories of people that they knew. And I, you know, growing up, I grew up in a college town in Texas. I didn't really know many other gay people or have kind of close friends. And, and I learned that that was partly because they had died. Um, my parents shared with me that one of their closest friends from medical school had died during this time. And one of the things that, that you talk about, Mike, in the book is as a journalist and someone having the opportunity to write about this is, is kind of preserving the memory of people um, and, and making these stories kind of come alive again. And, and these lives that were kind of ended prematurely, they could have kind of a chance to be with us. Um, so maybe just to start us off, um, Mike, I would really like it if you could just tell us a little bit about the book, what you discovered about kind of like 
these hidden lives and, and what it kind of meant to you to have the opportunity to, to share them with everyone. Sure, yeah, thank you, Chris. Uh, can people hear me? Yes, good, okay, great. Uh, well, first, thank you, Chris, for agreeing to be my conversation partner tonight. And thank you all for being here on a beautiful late summer evening. I know there's a lot of other things you could be doing, so I appreciate you taking uh, some time to be here tonight for this conversation. And we do hope it's a conversation. Chris and I will go back and forth, and then there'll be a chance to share some of your own stories, to ask some questions. Uh, I'm really happy to be back here in the Twin Cities. I was uh, in Minneapolis in February over at St. Joan of Arc, and there's some friends from there tonight, some friends from Dignity tonight, so thank you for, for coming back. Uh, and I'm excited to get to see St. Paul a little bit and to uh, be welcomed so graciously by the Jesuits and the staff here, especially Carol here at um, St. Thomas More. We were chatting before the event, and I learned about something I hadn't known anything about before, uh, Princess K of the Milky Way, the state fairs going on, and I was given kind of a crash course in some of the events happening there, so that was nice to hear a little bit of the local culture, uh, so thank you for that. Um, so to your question, uh, why this book, uh, Hidden Mercy? I have been uh, covering the Catholic Church as a reporter for the last decade or so. And when I began reporting full time, uh, it was at a time in our nation's history, our political discourse, where LGBT issues were really at the forefront of what people were talking about. Uh, Same-sex marriage was a hot topic around the country. It had been legalized in some states, uh, but not everywhere. This is probably 2012, 2013 or so. Uh, and my job as a reporter was to collect the stories of what uh, Catholics were thinking about those kinds of issues. So I would uh, figure out what are bishops saying about LGBT civil rights, what are they saying about marriage, uh, what are Catholics in the pews thinking about these topics. Uh, and it provided me an opportunity to explore this issue of what does it mean to be a gay person in the Catholic Church. And uh, that was important to me personally because I'm a gay person in the Catholic Church and I had been kind of struggling with do I have a place in this institution that means so much to me. And through my reporting I was able to explore some of those questions but it still felt pretty impersonal. Uh, I was uh, reading statements, I was looking at polls, I was doing interviews, uh, but it wasn't kind of getting at the difficult questions I was asking myself. And this went on for a number of years. I was doing different kinds of stories, um, but still not quite satisfied with the answers uh, I was getting. So I was kind of talking to a priest friend one night and telling him how I felt pretty isolated, uh, that I was having difficulty reconciling what it meant to be part of the LGBT community and part of an institution that wasn't always welcoming to that community. And I told him I kind of felt like I was the first person in history to go through this and sort of venting about everything and he listened very patiently, but inside his head was definitely rolling his eyes because I was not the first person to go through this. Uh, he had known many people through the decades who had these similar kinds of thoughts and challenges. And he told me a story that night that he had actually been involved in HIV and AIDS ministry back in the 1990s when he was a uh, chaplain on a college campus. And he had heard that the HIV and AIDS crisis was starting to affect some people on campus, students, faculty, staff, and they didn't have a place to meet. So he thought that he could offer them space at the Catholic Student Center, that they could use that space as an opportunity to just be with one another in a place where they felt safe and comfortable uh, sharing their stories, turning to one another for support. Uh, so anyway, he lets them meet there and word gets back to the bishop's office that the uh, chaplain has let this gay rights group meet in the Catholic center and the bishop asks him to shut it down because he thought it was sending the wrong message. The church was supporting this movement. Uh, so my friend was pretty savvy and said, well, he called the bishop's office and said, well, it's actually a pro-life ministry. People are dying. We need to be there to support them. And the bishop relented. And it was admittedly a pretty small story. He simply offered space to a group that needed somewhere to meet. But it showed me that there was a priest back in the 1990s when it was uh, still pretty taboo who was willing to put something on the line to support a community in need. And I didn't know that about his own ministry. I didn't know anything about the Catholic Church's response to HIV and AIDS. And he encouraged me to look more into this history because he thought that there would be uh, many more stories about 
Catholic priests, Catholic sisters, Catholic lay people, LGBT people who were Catholic, really doing the right thing when it came to HIV and AIDS care in, face of, in the face of opposition from their own institution, from the Catholic Church, and from society at large. And he was right. I spent the next several years uh, reaching out to people who lived and grieved and worked through a very difficult time in history. And I was really edified personally by that witness, by people who did the right thing during the height of the HIV and AIDS crisis when it would have been easier uh, to do nothing, which is in fact what most people did. So that's sort of the genesis of the book. It was my own attempt to uh, learn a history that had in many ways been denied to me. Yeah, and I, I think that um, I mean, part of it too is also just like as a gay man coming to know more deeply this experience of, of, of community that you identify with. I think that you know, one of the things I, reading the first few chapters is very emotional for me because I, you know, you kind of ask this natural question of where would I have fallen in this story or in this moment in history and there are so many of these lives of people that in a lot of ways I could have identified with and I raised this question of would I have just been forgotten, right? So, you know, could you talk a little bit about what it meant to kind of get an intimate glimpse into some of those lives and, and to put them in a book so that they could be remembered again? Yeah, uh, so one of the first uh, people I reached out to was a Catholic nun from Belleville, Illinois, so a small city in southern Illinois. And I had come across a very short newspaper article about uh, two Catholic sisters, Sister Carol and Sister Mary Ellen, who were headed to New York City to spend six months immersed in HIV and AIDS care in New York. Uh, and the idea was uh, they were both trained in nursing and hospital chaplaincy, and they were beginning to encounter uh, young men who had kind of moved home from the coast, they were sick, and they needed help. Uh, and they begin encountering not many, but a handful of these cases, and they aren't sure how to respond because they aren't trained in HIV and AIDS care. This is the mid-1980s. There's not a whole lot of training, at least in that part of the country, going on. So the two of them, uh, according to this article, are moving to New York to figure out how they can be better uh, allies and advocates and pastoral care providers. And I thought that, that's, that's a great story. You have these uh, two Catholic nuns from a small town who are going to move to New York City and learn everything they can about a virus that's affecting uh, the gay community primarily. Uh, but that was it. That was sort of the end of the story right there, that they were going to New York. It was from a small paper in their uh, hometown. Uh, so I decided I wanted to learn more. I needed to know more about what had happened. So I tracked Sister Carol down um, and asked if she would talk to me. So we connected on the phone. Uh, it was uh, in August back in 2016, I believe, and spent two hours talking. Sister Carol was very generous in sharing her story with me and trusting me with her story. She hadn't, um, she hadn't shared that story in a, in a wide venue yet, but she was willing to... Uh, trust that I would handle her story well. So over the next couple of hours, I learned more about why she was intent on being able to provide the kind of care that the community needed. I learned about her own biases and prejudices, uh, how she hadn't known any gay people in her town before she moved to New York, but through her education and her experience there was able to become an effective ally. And it was that first conversation where I realized that there were so many of these stories that needed to be captured, that these stories risked being lost if, if I didn't make an effort to capture some of them, uh, particularly because Sister Mary Ellen, who had moved to New York with her, had passed away just a year before I reached out to Carol, and with it, she took much of her story as well. So being able to be invited into these very personal uh, moments in people's lives, uh, having them trust me to then tell them to audiences like this, or through a book, or through the podcast plague that we created. It was a very moving experience, and that was just one of what would become dozens and dozens of similar interviews over the next few years. Yeah, I, I, Sister Carol was just a fascinating character yeah. <laughs> for me in the book. Um, and, and maybe I'll just read ver a very brief section. I mean, I, I had all of the various emotions in this book. I, I cried and I also laughed. And there's this little, great little section we were talking about, and Sister Carol um, handling the hotline. Mm -hmm. 
and someone calls in and he says, I'm 76 years old, I've been married to my wife for more than 50 years, and I'm gay, one caller asked Carol. How do I come out? And then you say, how is, was a Catholic nun supposed to know? Please hold, Carol said, yelling over to her colleague for advice. <laughs> and I, I loved that of, of someone kind of diving in very deeply into something she knew absolutely nothing about. And, and looking back now, it's, it's, it's funny, but it also involves a lot of vulnerability. Um, but it's also something that Catholic sisters have been doing for a very long time. Um, and in the, in the earlier section of the book, you also talk about the missionaries of charity opening up this home. And um, you know, we just had the feast day of Mother Teresa. So could you maybe just talk about um, that story? Sure, yeah. Uh, that section about Sister Carol, the couple of sentences before that. Uh, this was a hotline uh, run by Gay Men's Health Crisis in New York. And their mission was to put out accurate, very candid information about how to protect yourself from HIV. So a lot of the questions coming into the hotline were about, is this sex act safer than this one? Uh, are condoms an effective way to prevent the spread of HIV? And they had no idea a Catholic nun was on the other end of that line. Uh, but Carol, to her credit, had a thick binder where she had all the answers, and she read through it uh, for several days in a row to make sure she could answer those questions. And it was really uh, taking a big step out of her comfort zone. Uh, she was a nurse and was okay with medical stuff, but answering these questions, um, being someone who could suspend her uh, discomfort with a, a community she didn't understand, uh, it was real testament to Carol and people like her, uh, other Catholic sisters, who were willing to engage in that sort of uh, messy reality of entering into a community they didn't know because they wanted to learn to become effective allies. So that was a great story of Carol really uh, doing what it took to become this effective ally in the fight against HIV. But to your question about uh, the Missionaries of Charity and Mother Teresa's organization, uh, an interesting history again where you had a group of Catholics who I don't think anyone thought were going to be at the forefront of uh, the fight against HIV and AIDS because of the community it was affecting. Uh, a pretty traditional group of Catholic sisters uh, who nonetheless I think saw suffering and wanted to do something uh, positive to respond. So uh, they ended up trying to open a uh, Catholic uh, hospice essentially in New York City. Uh, there was this great need for housing in the 1980s and 90s for people living with HIV and AIDS, uh, particularly because non-discrimination laws were pretty non-existent. So a landlord could kick you out uh, if they found out you were gay, if they found out you were diagnosed with HIV, and there was this great housing need, uh, especially when you became sick and uh, maybe couldn't afford uh, good hospital care or couldn't afford good nursing home care. Uh, so the uh, Mother Teresa's uh, order, they planned to turn uh, an abandoned convent into a hospice facility. Uh, unfortunately, a group of neighbors find out about it, uh, parents of uh, children in Catholic school, and they say, we will pull our children from the school if you allow them to open this AIDS hospice nearby. That's where it gets at the level of stigma and shame attached to HIV and AIDS at the time. Uh, to his credit, and I, I don't know if we'll talk about him, but Cardinal John O'Connor, who was the Archbishop of New York, incredibly controversial character, uh, a friend of President Reagan, he ends up being appointed to the White House's AIDS Commission. Uh, extremely orthodox, uh, sort of very much against teaching uh, that condoms are effective in fighting HIV. Uh, to his credit in this instance, though, he says, okay, we're going to stick with this project. I'm going to find a piece of real estate that we can give you uh, pretty secretly. Uh, they didn't go public with it. They didn't consult the neighborhood. Uh, and he gives them this old rectory at another church in a different neighborhood. And the sisters move in and open uh, one of the first hospices, one of the first residential places for people uh, really at that point dying from age-related complications. So it wasn't always the most pleasant environment and there were some criticisms of how Mother Teresa's order handled that kind of care, but they stuck with it and opened what was a much needed ministry at that time. So I, what I like about that story is the complexity of it. So you had figures who were not in any way aligned with the LGBT community, but were trying to figure out how can we contribute to this cause. Yeah, one of the really interesting things in the book for me was just how well you captured that the Catholic Church is not one thing, 
right? So in the story, and sometimes you have the same people playing the role of um, encouraging or helping to like drive the most stigma, but then at the same time being at the very front of aid and and help, and, and it was interesting because Catholic leaders were both kind of driving the most stigma, but then at the same time were giving aid in ways that no other organization or church was doing at the time. And that was very shocking to me as, as I kind of read it. Um, could you maybe share, you know, what was particularly surprising to you in, in the ways that the that Catholics and Catholic leaders were really ahead of the curve in, in helping to give care and support? Yeah, I think your, your first point is important, and that's, that's in the book uh, very much so, sort of the backdrop of what was happening at the time. So uh, in the 1980s, a uh, Pew poll comes out, this is the mid-1980s, where it's something like 40 to 50% of Americans agree that HIV might be a punishment from God for people leading an immoral lifestyle. So this is a widespread belief that uh, people are willing to admit to a pollster, so the chances are that kind of uh, judgmental attitude was much higher. Uh, people tend not to admit views to pollsters that they don't want to be public. So that's kind of the general like atmosphere in society at the time. Most people uh, are really scared, uh, so there's some fear there, but they're also pretty judgmental because of the communities being affected by HIV in the early days. And religious leaders across the spectrum, um, in many instances, were helping to drive some of that fear. So I have in the book, um, there was a big debate among U.S. bishops about how the churches should respond to the AIDS crisis. Uh, an initial uh, letter comes out in which they say the Catholic Church is ready to be a partner in the fight against HIV and AIDS, perhaps even to the point where they could work with organizations that promoted the use of condoms, even though the church officially said that that was a no-go when it came to public health. Uh, but then there's this big public debate and this back and forth between conservatives and moderates in the U.S. hierarchy, and they eventually retract that view. They say, no, it is never morally licit for condoms to be used to uh, prevent the spread of HIV. So a big step back in many ways in terms of the public health campaign. Because at the time, Catholic healthcare was a huge system all around the country. So uh, it was one in five people who were in a hospital uh, at that time were in a Catholic hospital. Catholics were running big education systems. They were running uh, health clinics in addition to hospitals. So the church was going to be uh, a powerful player one way or the other. I interview some people in the book who say, if you were involved in HIV and AIDS, you kind of had to engage the Catholic church in some way because of the political influence it held and because of its social services. Uh, and in many instances, like I said, there was uh, sort of a negative uh, reaction from church leaders around this issue. They weren't seen as good partners. They were seen as fostering fear uh, and bigotry around HIV and AIDS. And yet at the same time, there were people like Sister Carol who were inspired by their Catholic faith to do the right thing. Even some bishops, uh, I think of Archbishop John Quinn in San Francisco, who was very uncomfortable with the LGBT community. Again, this is the time of Pope John Paul II. There's a return to orthodoxy happening in the Catholic Church. Uh, he nonetheless makes an effort to get to know the gay community in San Francisco. He listens, he makes some missteps, and when he gets criticism, he listens and changes how he does things after that. And he supports a parish in the middle of the Castro, the gay neighborhood in San Francisco, that really becomes a leader in HIV and AIDS care uh, in that city. Uh, they establish buddy programs. They're linking up people who are uh, bringing groceries to people who are homebound, cooking meals, doing laundry. Uh, they donate a convent across the street from the church to uh, an HIV and AIDS resource center that becomes, again, another hospice thing. So someone like Archbishop Quinn, who had made missteps, who had made comments that weren't particularly helpful, engages with the community and is able to see the need and see people, not an issue. And I, that did happen in places around the country, even if the more high-profile church leaders continued, I think, to stumble and stumble. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. And even Cardinal O'Connor is a very complex figure. Um, but another important kind of character in the, in the book, and we're at a Jesuit parish, we love talking about the Jesuits, is um, Father Bill. Um, and, and maybe for people who are not familiar with the book, could you just share a little bit of Father Bill's story and how he fits into your book? Yeah. No, we do love the Jesuits, not only because I work for them and they pay me, but because they host events like this and they're willing to engage uh, with tough topics. So I'm very grateful for the Jesuits. Uh, yeah, Father Bill McNichols. Um, 
a young Jesuit in the 1980s. He had moved to New York uh, to study at the Pratt Institute. He wanted to be an artist. He was interested in sort of using art as a way to uh, catechize, as a way to evangelize. And he's in New York to study art. But pretty quickly, he hears that there's a need in the LGBT community for pastoral care for people with HIV and AIDS. And it's this really difficult uh, situation where you have, at this point, mostly young men in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who are getting very sick and dying very quickly, weeks, months, maybe a year after their diagnosis. And there's this awful dynamic, I think, where most people assume that questions of life and death, questions of mortality, uh, the purpose of life, that you have several decades where you can really have to grapple with those. So maybe into your 60s, 70s, 80s, you can kind of push that off when you're in your 20s. But suddenly this community is realizing, no, these are questions we have to think about now uh, because their friends are dying, they're dying, uh, they're getting sick, they're afraid of getting sick. And many people, when they confront these challenges, turn to their faith. That makes sense. Um, that's what people are trained to do, offer pastoral care around these things. But the community felt cut off from their faith because they had been told that they weren't welcome, that they were leading sinful, immoral lifestyles. So Bill was aware of this dynamic, that a resource that many people take for granted was not available to a community that had a lot of need at the time. So he's a young priest, a young Jesuit, he's in New York to study art, but he's asked to visit someone in their home, a young man dying from AIDS, and he makes time to do that. And then he's asked to celebrate a healing mass for people with HIV, and he does that. And he eventually realizes that this is what he's being called to, that his art's gonna have to go on hold because there's this great need and there were so few priests who were willing to step up and provide the kind of care that people needed. So uh, Father Bill eventually uh, helps pioneer HIV and AIDS care in New York City. He's volunteering on the AIDS wards at uh, St. Vincent's Hospital and St. Clair's Hospital, uh, two famous Catholic hospitals in New York that provided a lot of HIV and AIDS resources. And he takes a very public role in doing this. Um, he's not afraid to talk about the issue. He's on the news talking about the shame and stigma facing people with HIV and AIDS, uh, and really helping to develop what will become a pretty robust pastoral care response in the church. But what I found especially compelling about Bill's example was he decided that in order to do this work effectively, he had to come out. And there were not many gay priests who were coming out publicly in the 1980s. It was a pretty taboo topic. And he said, it has to be a gay person responding to this crisis. They have to know I'm on their side, I understand what they're going through, that I'm not going to be judgmental. So he comes out very publicly and suffers a fair bit of setback, uh, lots and lots of hate mail. Uh, he's told by his superior that he'll never be able to work at a Catholic school, meaning he can't be around children because he's openly gay. So very much a institutional response that was not pleasant for him. But he had the courage to say, I'm going to stand with this community in need and be public about who I am as well. So a really uh, courageous response from a priest who had a lot to lose as a, young, as a young priest at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was struck by so many parts of, of Father Bill's story, uh, one of them being kind of what he had to go through, but how it didn't necessarily like loom large in, in his life. And, and one of the lines that I, I really loved that you captured from him was, when you're talking about the story and his decision to come out, and he says, I felt healing was needed, he said. It has to be a gay person. We have to bring healing to each other. Um, and it just, it, it seemed so fitting to me that the healing that would need to happen with parts of kind of the gay community and the Catholic Church would happen through a gay Catholic priest. Um, and I, I thought you just really captured that beautifully. And, and I think that also one of the really interesting things about his story is it demonstrates how much things have changed in the church. Um, so when we think about, um, you know, me being in this Jesuit parish and, and finding it to be very welcoming for me, uh, where I've struggled to find that in other parishes, um, you know, at the same time, I'm hearing Father Bill's story and his history as a Jesuit and how when he was in formation, he was referred out for shock therapy because he was gay and, and when he came out, he was told he could never work with children. Um, and, and yet he continued on and, and things changed and I can't help but think that part of why things changed was because he chose to kind of place himself at the center of that healing. So it's just such a beautiful story. 
Yeah, and I, I think you touched on something important that what was happening at the time, it wasn't that you had uh, priests and sisters and lay ministers who were saying to the gay community, here is something I have to give you. You're in need and I'm going to supply it to you. That certainly happened and there was a real need for the pastoral care I was talking about. But there was also an exchange that that interaction with the community helped to broaden the faith of the pastoral care providers. So uh, Bill, for sure, he began to see uh, a community that he was part of, but in a different way uh, that broadened his own kind of spirituality and deepened it. Uh, but Carol, particularly, um, she told me a story about uh, a time she was in New York and she had kind of gotten over some of her initial hiccups around the sex stuff, basically. Uh, she had dealt with that, but she still like, didn't really understand the community and she just decided that she was a uh, Polish Catholic nun from the Midwest and she was never gonna understand life of young gay men in New York. And she was okay with that, like that was fine, whatever. It just was what it was. Uh, but it was one evening, uh, she was sitting outside in front of the convent, uh, she was out on a smoke break, I think, and she saw uh, this young man named Robert walking down the street she had gotten to know him because his partner, Josh, was in the hospital and she had been making the rounds, getting to know them a little bit. And Robert was walking toward her and he was visibly upset. Uh, his shoulders were hunched. He looked like he had been crying. And she approached him and said, Robert, what's going on? And she knew he had been struggling uh, with his partner being sick and had listened to his story, gotten to know him a little bit. And he broke down and told Carol that Josh, his partner, had died that night. And when Carol tells me this story, uh, she still pauses and gets upset, even though it was decades earlier. And she said she remembers in that moment, she kind of froze initially. It was probably quicker than it felt to her, but she didn't really, she didn't know how to respond. Uh, again, it was this chasm between her own life and the people uh, whose experiences she didn't understand. So she froze because she didn't know what to do. But something spoke to her and said, do what you would do for anyone experiencing grief. So she reached out and hugged him and let Robert cry into her shoulder. And it was at that moment she pinpoints that there was love there, that even though she knew what her church said about this kind of love, in that interaction with the community, in that very personal, intimate connection with Robert, she understood that there was love there and she couldn't say in her heart that it was wrong. And that transformed her more than the medical training she had received, more than the experience on uh, the hospital floor. It was that moment where she understood how she could be an effective ally in the fight against HIV and AIDS, recognizing the love that was present in the community. So I, I think it's important to recognize it wasn't this one-way sort of dynamic where you had church leaders being the heroes of the story. In many ways, they were more transformed by their interactions with the community. And that's, I think, an important part of the story as well. Yeah, I thought, um, you know, the way that kind of Carol and, and Father Bill talk about kind of what changed for them, it's kind of, I think there's one way in which the narrative might have been, well, I encountered these people, and thus I kind of gave up that Catholic thing. Um, but for them, it really seemed much more of a deepening of their faith that led to kind of a, a change in, in the way they approached it, and not necessarily kind of like an outright, like, um, like kind of dive into heterodoxy or trying to like advocate against what church leaders are saying, but, but really just this stronger focus on the, on the people in front of them. Um, and at times, you know, in ways that were hard for them, you know, going back to kind of Father Bill's story, I, th I think about when you wrote how uh, in, in his early days when he was ministering to, to AIDS and, and HIV patients, he uh, would share a little bit about himself with them and they would find out that he was a priest. And, and, and in, in one story, you shared how someone had responded to him, a, a gay man who, who was struggling with this health crisis, and it said, well, get the hell out of here, right? And, and Father Bill is this complex figure because he himself is a gay man and has these various parts of himself, but he's so gracious in, in the way that he responds. And, and it just seems to me that, that for them, there wasn't really this focus on their own internal struggling. It was really a focus on the people that were before them and, and the care they're supposed to give. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, there's certainly uh, many examples in the book of people who were harmed by the church and walk away and leave. And there are some people who uh, had very positive experiences and never really seemed to grapple much with 
what does it mean to be someone in a church that doesn't fully welcome them. But what I appreciate about your example with Father Bill is he was experiencing all that as this was going on. He didn't know if he should stay a priest. He didn't know if he should stay a Jesuit. He wasn't fully welcome. He had had very negative experiences in the church. But that drama, that kind of inner turmoil, that took a back seat to the people in front of him, to the community that he was serving. So he was um, willing to uh, be the kind of pastoral presence that the person in front of him needed. So sometimes they would talk about uh, very traditional Catholic things like uh, praying to saints, uh, they would pray the rosary together, they would celebrate mass together. Other times he would just be a presence and listen. And the, the person in front of him might or might not know that he was a priest, they might or might not know that he was gay himself, but he was willing to sort of deal with his turmoil elsewhere in order to be the pastoral care provider that the person in front of him needed. And I thought there was something uh, heroic about that, and there was also something very challenging about that, because there was still today, I think, a lot of unresolved trauma from that time uh, among the people who lived through it, but especially the people who worked through it like this. How do you encounter so much pain and suffering while not processing those feelings, or not having the ability or the time to process those feelings? Yeah, and, and I, this is something that I also think about as someone who's a member of a, of a Jesuit parish, thinking about what Father Bill experienced and what definitely seemed to be the norm for Jesuit formation at the time that like led to a lot of serious harm for him. And, and I, you know, one of the things, that, you know, if, if I'd never read the story or you'd never written it down, I think there's one way in which kind of like the harm experience, not just by Father Bill, but by a lot of people whose stories were never told, would just be forgotten. And today in the church, we talk a lot about accountability and, and what that means and, and how to take responsibility for the past. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on, on what that means for communities like the Jesuits today to be accountable for the ways in which, you know, members who are vulnerable are subject to psychological abuse and, and obviously not, not intended, but the harm is really real. What does it mean to be accountable for that in, in the church today? Yeah, I, I think uh, that's a good question. And something that has stuck with me through this process, so I've been working on this project uh, on and off for the past five or six years, uh, doing lots and lots of interviews with people who are a couple decades older than me, at least, because uh, I was born in the mid-1980s, so I don't remember any of this history firsthand. So the project has been uh, connecting with individuals who do. And I think that sort of intergenerational uh, friendship, those sharing of stories, people who don't know that history as well. I think that's one way to begin to explore what does it mean to be accountable to our past. Uh, Father Bill's story, for example, uh, Chris has alluded to it, uh, when he came out to his superiors as a young Jesuit, uh, he was asked, and he agreed to it, he always makes that point, if he was interested in sort of a precursor to uh, what would become conversion therapy, uh, including the use of electroshock therapy. And he said yes, he agreed to try it, and he went to it and was devastated. It was a terrible experience for him, but he hadn't talked about it much. Uh, in fact, it was an interesting sort of uh, reporter journey where uh, he had sent me this box of old newspaper articles uh, from the local papers about some of his ministry, and there was in one of the articles, and I had been looking for it online but couldn't find it uh, until he sent me an old photocopy of it, it had mentioned this, it was called aversion therapy. And it mentioned this, and I had emailed Bill to ask if we could talk on the phone uh, a couple weeks after I received the box of materials, which was not uncommon. We would talk every couple weeks uh, for a long period of time as I was writing the book. Uh, but as soon as I called him, he said, I know what you want to talk about. So he knew that there was this uh, very difficult moment, this difficult chapter in his life that hadn't been talked about since that time in the 1980s when he first told someone about it. And he hadn't talked about it for decades. Uh, but he wasn't reluctant, uh, he felt comfortable sharing his story with me, but it was, uh, I think for him, uh, it was a sort of healing moment for him to be able to talk about some of that now that some of the uh, pain had lessened with time. But that's just one story. I, there's a lot of stories uh, in our church's past that I think we would do well to talk about, that I think younger generations have somewhat, I think, a responsibility to try to learn some of this history, especially if it's not being taught or passed on. So I do hope that I continue to kind of learn more of this history, but that other young people will be uh, inspired or motivated to reach out to individuals who just have more life experience, who have more of these stories. 
Yeah, no, that, that's really helpful. Um, so I'm going to open up for Q&A in just a moment. I know it always takes everyone a minute to think of their question. So I'm going to ask another question, and that will give you all a chance to think if you have one. Um, so um, but yeah, the question I have before that is, um, you know, I mean, you, there were so many stories to tell. Uh, and I, I loved the ones that you did. You know, is, is there any particular story that you wished you would have had more time to write about? And would you be willing to share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, so the, so the book uh, is a small snippet of the stories that could have gone into this. There were so many people who, whose stories simply didn't make it in because either they had passed away and there's not a complete record of what they had done, or because of time uh, constraints. Uh, the nice thing about working at America, which is, uh, who's been very supportive of this project, is every time I find another good story, they seem to find a way to let me write about it or put up another story. So uh, a good example was there's a chapter in the book about the Catholic worker movement uh, founded by Dorothy Day. I bet a lot of people here already know the basics of it. But sort of uh, a, a ministry where members stand in radical solidarity with the poor and the working class, opening up homes, uh, opening up soup kitchens, uh, begins in New York, but spreads across, across the country. Uh, and so as I was writing the book, I learned about a Catholic worker house in Chicago that had opened not far from where I live, uh, one of the first places to, dedicated to people with HIV and AIDS. And I was really interested in that, and I interviewed the founder of it. Uh, he was a former Franciscan, uh, and put a chapter in the book about some Catholic workers who had responded uh, in a good way to HIV and AIDS, even though the movement itself was really struggling with the LGBT question. But over the course of the uh, reporting, after the book had gone to press, I learned about this Catholic worker house in Syracuse, New York, uh, called the Friends of Dorothy House, which is a great name uh, for a couple different reasons. But it was a gay Catholic couple who had bought this big house, not sure what they were gonna do with it, and decided that the best use of the space was to open it up to people living with HIV and AIDS, uh, in many cases dying from age-related complications. So after the book came out, which was terrible timing, uh, because I wish it had been in the book, I was actually able to visit the house and get to know uh, Nick and Michael a little bit and see the place where a couple dozen uh, young men had died from age-related complications in these bedrooms. Uh, and in their living room, uh, covered with religious iconography, it's very campy, they say they became known as like the gay Catholic couple, so their friends would give them like the most out of control re religious art they could find. But amidst all that kind of chaos and clutter, there is a series of plaques where each person who lived in the house and died while staying there has their name. So it's sort of this memorial in the middle of all this chaos. And it was just this amazing example of two Catholics who live very out and loud, uh, proud lives as gay men, who were nonetheless committed to the church and responded to the gospel in a really heroic and courageous and concrete way. Uh, and stories like that keep coming to me now. People will send me emails and say, check out this place or check out that place. And it's overwhelming at times because there are so many good examples of Catholics doing the right thing. Uh, and I'm still continuing to explore them. I'm not sure what will, where they'll be next, but yeah. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing. Um, yeah, any questions, I can bring the mic to you. Just raise your hand and I will wander over. You said this book grew out of a conversation with a priest about your struggles as a gay man in the Catholic Church. And so now having spent all these many years writing this book and doing all the work on this project, how has your faith evolved or how has your relationship to the Catholic Church changed? How do you think of what it means to be a gay man in the Catholic Church differently now than you did before? Thank you for asking the first question, because I know it takes one person to ask the question and then other people will ask questions, so thank you for doing that. Uh, it's made me more secure in my faith. So I mentioned at the beginning that I felt isolated and like I was the only person going through this, um, which of course isn't true, but it feels that way at times. And I write toward the end of the book that after several years of doing these kinds of interviews and meeting people, uh, gay and straight alike, who were standing by the community and undertaking really positive 
uh, works to help serve a community in need, I wouldn't have felt so alone. And that gave me a good insight, I think, into uh, the scandal, really, of how LGBT history more broadly is simply not taught in many ways. I know it's changing a little bit for the better in some places, for the worse in other places, but this history has a way of empowering people, uh, connecting them to their past, and making them realize that there was this whole community that came ahead of them that fought to make spaces uh, more safe and more welcoming so that I can reap the benefits of it today. So I belong to a parish in Chicago that's uh, as affirming and welcoming as a Catholic space can be without uh, getting in too much trouble. Uh, and sometimes I take that for granted, right? Like there's this community that's uh, very supportive uh, and very welcoming, but I learned through the reporting of the book why it's that way and the struggles that particular community went through, how the previous pastor there had died from age-related complications and went public with his story, and as a result, it became known as a welcoming place for people who maybe didn't feel welcome otherwise. So I think learning that history has given me the confidence to do this kind of work, to have these kinds of conversations, uh, and also the strength to continue when it is still challenging because it's not uh, always easy to be gay and Catholic today, even though there have been strides. So really that connection with the past, I think, has been incredibly meaningful to me. I can probably hear you and then I'll repeat the question. One, oh. All right. The dead zone. Is there a reaction with the book you have now for some time, you know, and on your tour of the country, is there a reaction to the book that you did not participate, whether good or bad, from anyone, um, other than that, from what happened? Yeah, so the, the book's been out for a while. Is there a reaction and I didn't anticipate good or bad? Um, I'll say this. Um, so the book comes from a podcast called Plague that America produced that came out in 2019 that tells some of the same stories that are in the book. And uh, when the podcast came out, uh, it was sort of the first introduction of these stories to a wider audience. And I remember uh, getting lots of uh, very nice emails from people who uh, were inspired by the stories, who kind of saw their own story reflected in them. Uh, but there was also a fair share of uh, very critical uh, email, because uh, I came out as gay in the podcast and people weren't happy about that. Uh, but there was one um, email from a pretty rigidly right-wing Catholic news site that was not surprising that they attacked the series, that they attacked the Jesuits for letting this gay reporter make a series about the church's response to HIV and AIDS. Uh, so I got an email from someone at that organization um, <laughs> who said that he found the stories inspiring, that it was incredibly well done, that he saw Catholics living out their faith, which was great, but because I'm gay and it was a gay topic, it was horrible and he couldn't stand by without commenting on it. So I was like, okay, so you have this like right-wing uh, anti-gay organization moved by these stories, so there's something there, right? There's something about people responding to this crisis through a gospel-focused lens that's reaching people who maybe can't quite get over the uh, challenge of homosexuality because of their uh, traditional beliefs, but I was encouraged that these stories seem to be reaching all kinds of audiences, uh, even if there was still some something going on otherwise. So that's been really nice to see it reaching beyond uh, places like this, where I'm really glad that uh, there's a good response, but other communities that maybe didn't know the history so well. Hello, okay, great. Um, it's tempting, especially as you talked about some of the older folks who had passed away and how these stories were being lost, um, to see the AIDS crisis as like a time capsule, like it happened long ago and it's not a thing anymore, but obviously like HIV is still a scourge worldwide. So my question is, um, both with respect to the ongoing HIV and AIDS pandemic, but also COVID-19, monkeypox, whatever comes next down the pipeline. What are the lessons that you would take forward from that time of crisis and how we as Catholics especially could respond moving forward? Yeah, th thank you for asking that question. Um, normally I try this part of the conversation uh, to remind people that this is not history that happened and we kind of moved on, that 
the HIV crisis is still very much an ongoing public health crisis. Uh, tens of thousands of people are diagnosed with HIV in the United States every year, uh, many more around the world. Uh, it primarily affects communities of color uh, here in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, and I think that's a challenge to us. Why does it feel like we've moved on as a society? Certainly there were pharmaceutical advances uh, beginning in the late 90s that uh, for the good changed the nature of what it means to be diagnosed with HIV. It's no longer uh, considered a death sentence. It's chronic but manageable, and that's great news. But it's still a public health crisis. Uh, but the response um, among the faith community more broadly has really diminished in recent years. And I think that's worth grappling with. Uh, certainly overseas, um, many religious groups, including the Catholic Church, are still at the forefront of fighting HIV and AIDS, and that's good and something we should be encouraged by. But I think there could be much more uh, that can be done. Uh, interestingly enough, I'm actually working on a story this week. Uh, a federal judge in Texas ruled that you could have a religious objection to a medication that uh, prevents the spread of HIV, uh, used in the gay community as a way to help protect people and hopefully eventually eradicate HIV. And I'm working on a story this week about what does the Catholic Church say about that? Is there actually any religious objection to this? But uh, it's still an issue. There's still a taboo around this. So in some ways, it's discouraging that it's been 40 years and there's still something in the religious uh, community in this country that doesn't want to deal with the reality of a public health crisis. Uh, but I'm encouraged that the ethicists I'm interviewing for this story, Catholic uh, medical ethicists, are very much, I think, on the right side of this question, that uh, this is a valuable public health tool, which was not always the dialogue that was happening back in the 1980s. All right. We'll, we'll take one. Looking even farther ahead, in any of your reporting, have you learned about what's going on with the synod, the, on synodality, and including New Ways Ministry, and are you hopeful? Because um, my kids, one of whom is a member here, they, kids, they don't care. They don't, ca you know, like, but I don't want to wait till they're my age for, so I'm asking about the changing of the teachings of the church. Is, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Have you heard anything? Yeah, I, I sometimes joke that one of the benefits of writing a history book is that my opinions stop in 1996 when my book stops, so I don't have to have any opinion on current debates, which is good because I'm a reporter and my bosses would not like it if I said what I thought about church teaching changing or not changing. But I will say this. Um, so there's this big global consultation going on right now, right, with uh, Pope Francis asking bishops around the world to consult the laity about all kinds of different issues. And bishops will gather together in Rome next year, I think, um, to kind of go over what they heard and consider uh, the future of the church. And what we're seeing in the United States and some places uh, in Europe, around the world, uh, LGBT issues are a big concern among the laity. Um, I think parents are seeing their children leave the church, uh, often citing the church's view on LGBT people as a reason why, whether they're members of the community or not. There seems to be this perceived intolerance by church leaders. Uh, so it's something the laity is thinking about and something that's bothering them. And we see in data that young people who step away from religion uh, often cite this as a reason why, again, whether they're members of the community or not. Um, so we know that, like this is borne out in data and studies. Uh, we also know that Christian communities in the U.S. that are affirming and welcoming are also struggling with keeping young people involved. So it's not, I don't think changing that one teaching is going to be the cure-all to this. I sometimes say that the church should be welcoming not because it will yield great results in terms of attendance, but because it's the right thing to do. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. As for whether I'm optimistic, I always like to say that I am. And Events like this do give me optimism. I liked Chris's um, demographic profile of the audience before to see that sort of cross-generational, which was really encouraging. Uh, I speak at a lot of college campuses about the book and introduce some of this history. I spoke at uh, Notre Dame a couple months ago, and someone read the book. They were given it as a gift by their parents and had kind of stepped away from the church because 
uh, she hadn't felt fully welcome, part of the LGBT community, and told me that she had actually started going back to church after because she hadn't known. I mean, it was like this amazing experience to see how these stories affected someone's faith life. So that, those are like very optimistic things, and I should probably just end my answer there. But we also see that young people who are connected to the church today in the United States tend to be uh, pretty orthodox and pretty traditional in their views. And it makes sense in a way that they're attracted to an institution that they see as solid and conservative and unchanging, so they want to be part of that. But I think a challenge for people who want to see the church become more welcoming on this issue is you have to kind of show up and be committed and be part of the process and be engaged. If it's, if it's not a safe space for you, you shouldn't be doing that. I understand that. But if you're kind of on the fence but wish uh, more communities like this one existed out there, you got to show up and be part of it and continue the fight. Otherwise, the only people who will be there are the people you probably don't want to be making the rules going forward. So I'm optimistic, but there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Am I allowed to share? Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that one thing I loved about the book was how it captured that the church is quite often both in a lot of ways at the front of stigmatizing, but then also at the very, very front of aid and care. Uh, so in the church even today, you'll, in the church even today, um, you'll find a lot of people who will say kind of the most harmful things, a lot of communities that are not welcome, but also Catholic Charities is one of the largest charitable organizations in the world, as is Catholic Relief Services. When you think about aid to refugees and immigrants, Catholic Relief Services is one of the top three organizations in the country. So if you want to think about where can I be at the forefront of aid and care, a lot of times that is being involved in Catholic institutions. Um, and, and I really, I loved how you captured that during this time period in, in the book. If you wanted to be at the forefront of AIDS care, it meant you worked with Catholics. Um, and, and the other thing that I will say that I love what this book captures is how much things really have changed in the church. When it comes to homosexuality, being able to talk about it, being able to be an open person, this is a very, very different world from 1996, which really was not that long ago. And a lot of times I give the example of the most recent uh, instructions by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith on the blessing of same-sex unions, which historically is a congregation that was a hardliner on a lot of issues. And, and it did say that we won't be doing this under these circumstances, but one of the things that the document said that a lot of people missed is that it said that in these relationships there are a lot of goods to be acknowledged. And that sort of thing would have never come out of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith even 10 years ago. So there, it, it's not a question of whether things will change. Part of what the book captures is that things have changed. Um, and, and part of being in the church means often that you are at in last place, but then you're also at the forefront. Um, so it's a, it's a very complex institution. I really appreciated how, how Michael captured that. And, and maybe just to close out, I do have one last question for you. And you know, what, part of what this book helped to uncover is, is you know, during this time period, what it meant to be at the forefront of care to the LGBTQ community is caring for those with HIV and AIDS. And I would be curious to hear your thoughts on you know, as a, as a Catholic parish, what would it mean to be at the forefront of care for, for the community in 2022? Uh, care for the LGBT community in 2022. That's a great question. Uh, I think there's a few basic things that parishes can do. Uh, one is make sure people know that they're welcome. Uh, I know that it's small things, but inviting uh, LGBT people to be in uh, leadership positions parish, inviting them to uh, do readings at Mass, to distribute the Eucharist, um, making sure that people know they won't hear, not challenging homilies, but that they won't hear things that will make them feel unwelcome or uh, other than the community, that they're part of the wider community. Uh, I think listening is a hugely important thing. Sometimes I'm asked um, about the church's uh, teachings or views uh, as it relates to the transgender community. And 
I wrote a story uh, earlier this week about uh, the struggles that some Catholic school districts are facing in adopting policies that affect uh, trans students and their families. And I don't have a good answer. I think as a society, we're learning how to talk about this. We're learning, uh, we're learning a lot together. And I think that's a good thing. But I, I say sometimes that the church, unfortunately, it sometimes is tempted to proclaim before it's listened. And I think deep listening to a community that doesn't always feel welcome is a necessary first step. And I'm not sure we're always good at doing that. So I think that applies even though uh, there has been a lot of progress since the 80s and 90s like we talked about. There is still this need to listen deeply to a community and ask how can we do better? What are your needs? What can we do as a parish community? And it seems here with the reputation for being a welcoming place that that is taking place and it's an ongoing process. So that's, that's good to see. And I'm confident it's taking place at other parishes across the country as well. Yeah, so as we close out, um, so those of you who did not raise your hand while reading the book, we wrote down your names and books are for sale in the back. Um, so you can purchase your book there. Um, but, but thank you everyone very much for coming and, and maybe we'll, let's close out by, by thanking Mike for joining us this evening.